Are you familiar with the 20, uh, May 23rd letter I sent to you along with several of my Democratic colleagues on this committee? Yes, I am. Do you understand that this committee not only has jurisdiction but a responsibility to oversee the activities of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network? Yes. Is there some reason why I did not get a response uh, to the letter that I sent May 23rd? So, uh, Ranking Member Waters, first of all, let me thank you for your service to California. Being a resident of California, uh, I appreciate everything that thank you've you done very much. for the community I there. I don't want to take my time. I, I've, I also I have appreciated the opportunity to meet Reclaim with you my time. several times when we were doing our, our my time. The time belongs to the gentlelady from California. You are listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Enlighten Me. I'm your host, Andrea Cameron, and I have, uh, as always, I try to, to give you guys a great show, and I try to, to keep you informed, keep you enlightened. So for today, I don't know if you guys have seen the trailers for the movie Detroit, but it has been something um, that I am looking forward to this weekend. Uh, the movie Detroit opens this weekend. But before that, a book that was released last month, actually, called The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit. We have that author, Scott Curisage, on the program today to talk about what happened before and how some of the things that happened in, in Detroit echo the current U.S. political climate. Um, so I think uh, if you're looking for a context as to what's going on right now, look back to what has been happening uh, the 50 years in Detroit to see, you know, for yourself what is going on um, in the U.S. A lot of people are looking forward to a movie that is coming out called Detroit. And if you want to know some of the, the issues that are happening at the time, take a look at the trait take a listen to the trailer. Here in Detroit, a city of war. On the city's west side, a 150 block area is off limits to everybody. U.S. Army paratroopers, National Guardsmen, state and local police are continuing the fight against a handful of snipers. Hello. Oh, everything is fine. No trouble here. I'll sleep when they stop riding. Hey, fellas. I'm going to that grocery store across the street. I come bearing gifts. Thank you. Got any sugar? Nah, don't push your man. It's a war zone out there. They're destroying the city. Whoa, hey, y'all seen this? Hey, look, we're not too far from the Algiers. Let's just go there until all this blows over. When you're black, it's almost like having a gun pointed at your face. It's like this. Hey, boy, what you doing on my street? Get that gun off me. A what? Get the dog! Get the dog! Get the dog! Who's shooting? Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's just a start. <laughs> it just starts racism. 
Army taking fire. Trust fire, trust fire. Near the Algiers Motel. Hey, y'all, there's a bunch of police outside right now. Let's not be stupid in this situation. You need to tell me where the gun is. I got all night, people. Tell me exactly what is going on here. I need you to survive the night. think we're bluffing? We don't bluff. We will be back with Scott Kirshigan. He is the author of The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit. This is WERALP 96.7 FM. You're listening to Enlighten Me. I'm your host, Andrea Cambron. You are listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Enlighten Me. I'm your host, Andrea Cambron, and I am so pleased to bring on Scott Krishigan on the program. He is the author of The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit. Scott, thank you so much for joining me on Enlighten Me. Uh, thank you for having me. So set the stage for us, um, because your book really gets into um, the nitty gritty of what has been happening in Detroit. Uh, the you know what is, has been the struggles that Detroit has been facing and how they have um, gotten there in the first place. Can you set the stage for what has been going on in Detroit and how it has affected um, you know much of the way that Detroit even operates? Sure. Well, I think the 50th anniversary of the 1967 rebellion is an extremely important time to remember Mm -hmm. what happened 50 years ago. But it's also a time to remember and put into context what's happened over the past 50 years. Yeah, yeah. It's it's my argument that 1967 really represented a turning point, a dramatic turning point, not just for the city of Detroit, but for the whole nation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Kerner Commission warned, uh, the Kerner Commission was appointed by President Johnson to really understand what happened, uh, what was the cause of these urban rebellions that were all across the country um, in the mid to late 60s, right. and to recommend you know solutions or at least steps to address the problems. And they warned that if if the U.S. did not uh, alter its quote present course, that it, what we would see is a continued polarization of society and one that would eventually erode our basic democratic values. Yeah. I think we can. There's. there's there's no, you don't have to be a genius to see that we, we did not alter course in the way we should have. And now we're facing a serious crisis of polarization and a crisis of democracy in this country. Yeah. The riots of 67 in Detroit were some of the um, most virulent and, and some of the um, riots that, I mean, echoed throughout the U.S. Talk a little bit about how um, those riots affect how we even move and, and, and work today. 
you know, I think a lot of it is inherent in just the language we use. You mm-hmm. know, so the term riot was used quite extensively, but within the black community and among activists, people really gravitated towards framing the events of 67 as a rebellion. Yeah. And they weren't arguing that there was a constant, that it was a, you know, a coordinated political uh, event or that there was one party, you know, organization leading everything. But what they argued was that there was, uh, there were underlying tensions deeply rooted in U.S. society. The Kerner Commission cited white racism, police brutality as a problem. Martin Luther King said that what we need to do is not just condemn the violence of the rebellions, but condemn the intolerant conditions that really leave uh, many people with no alternative but to resort to violence to get attention. Yeah. And so, you know, this is really what was at the root of the debate between riot and rebellion. To see it as a riot was to frame it primarily in terms of a law and order problem, one that really was uh, addressed by this right-wing shift from the war on poverty to a war on crime. Mm-hmm. There are, uh, to this day, over $400 million spent imprisoning Detroiters while you know, funding for jobs, funding for education, uh, funding for basic, you know, public and social services have been cut because of the bankruptcy uh, and the emergency management rule. Yeah. You write, Scott, about the rise of the counter-revolution and, and you know, and the, the essence of the fact that um, Detroit's first black mayor and white flight and how that fostered white conservative base of power in the suburbs alongside concentrated poverty and the housing crisis in the city. And we're seeing a lot of um, those same sentiments echoed today, right, in some of the policies that the Trump administration is putting forth regarding um, housing, regarding um, criminal justice, regarding, um, you know, just several, education. How are some of the... Um, the aspects of organizations like um, Black Lives Matter or um, uh, uh, some of the longstanding organizations like the NAACP, um, how are those organizations dealing with or, or how can you, uh, can you look at some of the ways that those organizations are dealing with some of these aspects that are happening, that have happened before and, have happen- and are happening today? I think, you know, one response uh, to the rebellions was to recognize, again, what Dr. King called those intolerant conditions, Mm -hmm. to point out that the police force in Detroit, despite the city having close to, you know, a population that was half African-American, still a 95 percent white police force. Yeah, yeah. The city's own police commissioner had assessed that over 90 percent or 90 percent of the police he assessed were bigoted. So there were serious problems. You know, police brutality was rampant. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people in the black community saw the police as the o- occupying army. And I think, you know, one thing about the, this new movie, which you're playing a clip of, uh, shows is that, you know, the, the killings that occurred during the rebellion itself were mostly of law enforcement uh, killing c- civilians. Yeah. And most of the victims were black. And it wasn't just, you know, one accidental shooting that happened. In the case of the Algiers Motel, you really have this uh, uh, example of systematic police terror yeah. of of really unarmed, uh, innocent black civilians. So there were there were there was definitely a movement to say we have to address those root causes: the persistent segregation and inequality within education, mm-hmm. uh, within um, housing, and the shift 
towards framing the problem simply as a crisis of law and order, as Richard Nixon did, as the next mayor of Detroit, Roman Gribbs, did, um, and as basically Trump and Jeff Sessions are, are doing to this day, yeah. was, was to really capitalize on a politics of fear, a politics of divisiveness, and, and really what we're seeing now with, with this latest move towards addressing so-called the so-called civil rights of, of whites being discriminated against in higher education, to, to frame the whole issue of civil rights as reverse discrimination, yeah. you know, against whites. And to take what are real issues, I mean, places like Detroit, you know, Youngstown, Ohio, where the president was last week, these places have faced serious economic crises. Yeah. But yeah. to simply frame it in terms of, you know, uh, a black person is taking away your job or your place within college mm-hmm. is to really ignore the root causes that the rebellions expose and simply, you know, play the politics of, of scapegoating and divisiveness. Yeah. So that's that's what's really uh, torn, apart, tar- torn apart Detroit. And, you know, Detroit was not an exception to what was happening in the rest of the country. It was really at the cutting edge of what was happening, both in terms of progressive movements and in terms of these counter-revolutionary right-wing movements. Speaking on that, Scott, you know, that that is one of the um, issues that I'm, I, I have been looking at um, in looking at your book and in looking at just Detroit in general, is this um, notion that, you know, D- Detroit was this once thriving city, right? And, you know, it was just kind of eviscerated. Um, resources were cut out of it. Like you say in the book, um, R- Governor Rick Snyder ordered a state takeover, uh, takeover of Detroit and installed an emergency manager with au- autocratic control over the city to enact a corporate restructuring plan. I mean, there were certain very structural things that happened to Detroit um, that made it this, this way and have made it, um, you know, a, a place where... Um, a lot of the people that were the uh, majority in Detroit did not have control. Can you talk a little bit about how that has affected Detroit and how that mirrors some of the things that are being put in place by this new administration today? Sure. You know, Detroit was once uh, an international marvel of Mm -hmm. technological advancement. It was considered, you know, one of the greatest centers of wealth ever created in human history. And I think the idea of uh, you know, many liberal leaders in the city was that eventually a rising tide would lift all boats. Now, for many, you know, working class people and uh, people of color, that slow, gradual advancement towards integration uh, and equality wasn't happening fast enough. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you had uh, Detroit at the cutting edge of labor movement activism, civil rights and black power movement activism. I think what the rebellions did was it forced the country to confront these deep and growing inequalities and and really uh, stripped away that illusion that somehow everyone would somehow, you know, increasingly uh, see their condition improve. More diverse. Yeah. Yeah. And and once we as a nation had to confront that problem and once we had to realize that everybody would would have the right to vote and the right to hold office, that's what's in many ways, you know, it's it's that it's that dose of reality that's created the polarization more so than simply, you know, acts of of violence that occurred in the cities. And, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, Detroit's, uh, that the black, that the black, black political empowerment in Detroit occurred at the same moment Mm -hmm. when basically the industrial economy uh, was being eroded. Many people would actually link those two and say, you know, in many ways, it was the empowerment of black workers combined with the empowerment unions that led corporations like General Motors to search for, you know, uh, 
more uh, business-friendly, anti-union mm-hmm. um, states to mm-hmm. relocate, and eventually, of course, outsource to the rest of the country. Yeah. And, 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 and what happened was it was the combination of the political polarization and the economic polarization that really undermined the prospects for um, uh, black political empowerment in Detroit. Up to the point where, again, you know, Detroit gets in trouble with these Wall Street loans uh, and derivatives, uh, and the state government led all three branches uh, by Republicans uh, impose this really draconian emergency management law that says, uh, "Well, we can't imp- we can't uh, get Detroit voters to pass these, uh, you know, draconian budget cuts and job losses and shutting down schools and parks. So what we'll do is we'll have to just." simply find a way to, to appoint an autocratic ruler over the school system and over the whole city mm-hmm. in, in order to get things done. And so what you have now is you have basically policies that are designed to empower billionaires to buy up as much land and property in the city, um, get as many tax breaks as they can. I mean, amazingly, you know, the owner of the hockey team got a $285 million uh, subsidy while the city was in bankruptcy. Yeah. To, to just give a sense of, you know, the warp priorities. Um, but, uh, yeah, sure, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to just add to that. I mean, you're right. I mean, the, this is, I, I remember even, you know, 10 plus years ago where people could get houses in Detroit for like a dollar. And you think about the, the people that were forced out of those houses in the first place because there were no jobs or opportunities or whatever. Um, you know, those houses became abandoned. You've got whole communities in Detroit that were abandoned that people grabbed up for pennies on the dollar and have, you know, revitalized neighborhoods. But peop- there were communities that lived in those na- neighborhoods previous to that, um, but were, f- uh, for some, forced out because not a lot of opportunities were present for them to continue to live in Detroit. Yeah, I think what's happened really in the downtown, the, the central core, the seven point uh, seven plus square mile, you know, center around down, is this skyrocketing rents, gentrification. Mm-hmm. But there's actually still, you know, a lot of space in the rest of the city and a lot that could be done even amidst, you know, this, this focus on downtown. So there's actually been a concerted effort to make the areas outside of the downtown less livable. Mm. $250 million was allocated by the Obama administration to help uh, homeowners deal with foreclosures yeah. or, you know, mortgages that were underwater. The city and the state under emergency management diverted that money instead to tearing down houses. Wow. Wow. Um, and while that's happening, 83,000 people had their water shut off. And over a 15-year period, 195 public schools were closed. So there's been basically choices made by people in high places to say yeah. we're going to invest in having a certain type of population with a certain type of income. You know, in certain neighborhoods, they're increasingly under privatized security, um, and you know, get so many tax breaks that they're almost not paying property taxes on their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, while others have seen their property taxes rise. They've they've been hit by you know predatory lending, yeah. sparking a foreclosure crisis, redlining. The funds, yeah, the funds designed to help them are actually being diverted towards you know uh, making land more accessible to big scale developers. Jeez. So this is you know again a sign of really you know uh, it's no longer a debate over what type of reform uh, and what the speed of reform will be, which was really the debate of the sixties. The the struggle in each right now is between these really dramatically different alternatives mm-hmm. one which is this autocratic rule by by a, uh, a billionaire class 
and their, you know, and their supporters. Yeah. And another is people having to simply, you know, go back to the grassroots and reinvent democracy, go back to, you know, while the school system is in crisis, go back to the type of freedom schooling that was central to the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, go back to urban farming when, you know, people are facing a shortage of jobs and, and access to fresh food. Um, and to look forward to how can the new technology, things like uh, digital fabrication or what's more colloquially known as 3D printing, mm-hmm. how can people, when they can no longer rely on the government or the corporations to take care of them, if they ever could, how can people have the means of production in their own hands to really uh, create a 21st century version of self-determination was, was really at the center of the Black Power Movement. Speaking on that, Scott, we're with Scott Kirshigan. He is the author of uh, The 50-Year Rebellion and How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit. Speaking on that, Scott, uh, you know, you also talk about how uh, Detroit went from rebellion to revolution. And it is um, it is actually heartwarming for me, uh, being an African-American woman, um, who, you know, black women started uh, Black Lives Matter, right? And you write how, you know, black women in Detroit are spearheading the revolution in Detroit. Talk a little bit about how black women are looking to, um, you know, have self-determination for their own within Detroit and how that is looking um, for them. Yeah, I mean... Black women have been really at the center of this grassroots revolutionary movement. Mm-hmm. Um, one is because many of them, for instance, have been responding to their sons yeah. or partners being killed or by the police or imprisoned or being lost, you know, uh, to the drug wars. Um, and they have responded not simply by, you know, calling for more protests and rebellion, because Detroit had, in essence, what I have called 50 years of rebellion which was an important defiance of you know uh the established order but did not necessarily create a a new order yeah Um, and so what you're seeing through uh community organizing around education around um you know not just confronting police brutality but creating alternative models of community safety uh, and economic uh, uh vitality what you're seeing in these movements also you know in the in the poetry and the hip-hop movement what you're seeing are people coming together and really uh, expressing a collective sense of value uh, that promote uh, sustainability, mm-hmm. that promote uh, humanity and safety, not in terms, again, of this war on crime, law and order, right. but in terms of, of, of taking care of each other um, and saying, you know, how can we create community-based dispute re- resolution mechanisms that allow us to resolve conflicts nonviolently so we don't have to involve the police because, you know, in so many instances of the police, uh, of police brutality, uh, activists found out that they, they really started in, in many cases with conflicts among people mm-hmm. that if they had been, if, if we had new tools to resolve, you know, we wouldn't have to introduce uh, the, the possibility of state violence. Yeah. Scott Kirshigan, he is the author of The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit. The movie Detroit is out this weekend. I am sure a lot of people, you know, I was heard, I heard from a lot of people that I would be triggered <laughs> <laughs> by watching the movie. So I will uh, get a couple of friends to um, to watch it with me. But Scott, thank you so much for giving us the history of uh, the movement and the rebellion and how, um, you know, a lot of the the things that are happening right now echo some of the um, stuff that has has happened 
in Detroit. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Enlighten Me. Okay, thank you for having me. All right, so, uh, you know, I'm so glad that, you know, we have this book, The 50-Year Rebellion. Uh, It is out everywhere. It actually was released last month on Amazon, so it is available everywhere you look. Uh, The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit by Scott Kirshigan. I'm so glad he was able to join us on the program because I really appreciate uh, anytime someone's able to enlighten us on what you know, we may be looking at. So if you go see the movie Detroit, go get the book first, you know, get get some get some context to what you will be looking at. All right. Uh, so, guys, of course, I'm going to talk about Auntie Maxine because she has given us so much um, that I want to, you know, reclaim a lot of my time since it's the end of the show. I want you guys to... You want to talk about the things I've done, but I'm reclaiming my time, yeah. You want to speak on the battles I've won, but I'm reclaiming my time, That's not why I brought you here to share, and I'm reclaiming my time. Don't read my resume, cause I was there. And just to let you guys know, this is by Mikael Kilgore. He is a gospel artist, and he did this mix on uh, YouTube, this gospel mix of Maxine Waters reclaiming her time. All right, guys. Catch you guys later every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Enlighten Me is on WERA in Arlington, Virginia. Have a great week. See you guys next Wednesday. Reclaiming my time. Hey, what about the letter? Reclaiming my time. That I sent you way back when. Reclaiming my time.